panel. Um, so in the spirit of Ban Doon, and we're going to do this, this is the first edition of a yearly uh, uh, conference that we want to organize. So uh, we want to do it in the spirit of Ban Doon. That means bringing uh, about the different struggles together and exchanging knowledge and how we can support each other. So that's why in that tradition, we're also going to have from specific uh, different regions uh, a panel. So uh, I want to ask for the panelists. Uh, specifically, uh, Kjeld Kroon, so you can applaud for Kjeld Kroon. Bonaire and studies in Leiden, he's an activist for Bonaire's political rights and did an internship for, at Human Rights in Bonaire in 2021. As a philosophy student, uh, global and comparative perspectives, he specializes in decolonial and political uh, philosophy, and I know uh, he tries to be very, we, we said it today when we were rooting, to be honest about what's going on. And I know Kjell is someone who's really honest about what's going on in Bonaire. Uh, so we're going to hear more about that. Thank you uh, for being here, uh, Kjell, with us today. And next to that, we have uh, Fitra Jalita, who's going to speak from an Indonesian perspective. Uh, she's a journalist, writer, journalist. and writes about topics that are close to our hearts, such as Islam, Muslims, and the history of the Netherlands in Indonesia. She is currently working on her first book about Indonesian perspectives on the colonial past slash present, I might say. So thank you, Fitria, uh, for being with us. And then last but not least, we have uh, Pablo Alanis, and I, I met you on the phone, and today, first time person, and I already liked you because he immediately offered, let me film this, this needs to be registered, so that's why he also brought the gear that we can watch it back later, and I really love that uh, spirit, so I'm curious to hear from you as well. Pablo Alanis uh, was part of the uh, struggle in Bolivia, they have the first elected indigenous uh, president there that was brought into power out of social movements, and he was part of these social movements at the time surrounding the 2000s, um, and that also had a yeah, social, cultural, political impact on the country. So we're gonna learn or hear from you as well uh, what that brought. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So um, this is a question. Yes, I'll move this. Very good. To have a cameraman in the panel, so we have it. Um, so. A question to all three of you. Um, the you know the main theme of the conference is reparations and also decolonization, decolonial reparations. So that means also reparations from the position of the global south and other countries that are still being colonized or colonialism is uh, yeah it's not a historic thing we commemorate. It's ongoing. Um, from that yeah perspective of line of thought, could you maybe share and you know, feel free um, uh, who wants to go first share what is the colonial damage or ongoing colonialism that you still see from the context that you are from. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Uh, hello, my name is Pablo Alanes. I come from Bolivia, and uh, I'm very honored to be part of this, uh, this, uh, this conference. I guess it's very important that um, at these times, uh, in what everything is going on in the world and the history that we are uh, building together, uh, that we can realize that the colonialism is not only uh, a thing of the past that damaged our past, 
but it's mostly our way that we understand life now because it is inside of our uh, actions, in everyday action. So uh, if we believe that only uh, being in this planet is just a matter of thinking, then we are being colonized. So uh, we need to open our hearts, open our, our minds, uh, and open our vision for uh, different uh, cultures and also ancient uh, wisdom, which uh, can allow us to be in balance and also to find uh, possible um, answers and teachings that we can uh, use to these times to uh, finally prevail and go out from this uh, crazy darkness that we are living. Thank you. And maybe before you give it uh, to the next one also, because you were active in the, you, you already said we cannot see it as a past, the colonialism. So in the 2000 people stood to the street. Can you provide us with some context? Why did you join the social protest and what were the demands um, and what, what came out of it for you from that period? Oh, yes. Um, well, um, back then in Bolivia, uh, well, uh, I guess uh, that our history is uh, uh, very complex and it's very, uh, it's like an extreme way of uh, uh, actions and uh, social, uh, yeah, problems that have happened that um, it was very hard to see uh, in the streets uh, of the city and also in the country uh, like um, uh, people that who is living uh, actually in the time of uh, I don't know Jesus Christ maybe you know in that time in the way that they uh, feel they, they understand life in the way that they uh, make their own foods in the way that they dress and they went in the way that they carry their own children in the way they understand their closest loved ones their family so it's like like uh, an, uh, an imagine imagination of life that it comes from really a different time that is actually present. And this type of uh, people amongst another, another type of people, like it's like completely progressist, like believing in hard work and creating uh, institutions. Linear thinking. Uh, yes, yeah, and, and this, uh, yeah, and, and people who is uh, more going to open the systems and the people who believe in politics so much that they don't care uh, too much uh, uh, about the soul and the heart. And um, mainly people who are uh, hurting their, themselves without seeing them each other. So that was one of the reasons that I was uh, really trying to be there and do something. Because I truly, deeply believe that uh, art and ancient culture and ancient wisdom is the only way that we have, the only tools that we have to do something about it, yeah. and then get together all the people. Oh, that's uh, beautiful, and thank you for sharing as well. For those with, with context, what you were saying, people uh, living in the times of Jesus Christ, or at least something that was pre-colonial, that was before Columbus arrived on the ship, that that still kept there, is very special as well, because in Bolivia, so Sandra mentioned, right, the settler context of Australia, the United States, New Zealand, and so forth, but actually, a lot of the countries also in the uh, yes, south of the US uh, are also settler states. So you'll see that um, in the sense that you have Spanish and you know you call it Latin. Um, and that's different. That's a different culture that they brought and um, yeah, 
imposed, and Bolivia is one of the last countries that have a majority um, indigenous still because there has been such a huge um, colonial impact. And when you see these two worlds, let's say, meeting or living, I don't know, I don't know meeting is maybe not the right word, but uh, living past each other, how did it make a difference that, let's say, from the movement that still maintains this other world brought forward a president that now has to run a nation state? How did that make a difference according to you? And maybe what are what was still challenging, because I can also imagine if you then have to operate another system that isn't from there, it can be challenging too. So you could reflect on that. Yes, um, well, uh, I think it's very important to understand the situation that is that, that is the meaning of Bolivia, actually. Because uh, we, we are so blessed to have so many people, so many nations under our own territory, like to say. Uh, estimation, how many nations do you well, have? How many nations do we have? 36. 36, 36. nations. Yeah. Well, to uh, have a fellow Bolivian here. <laughs> <laughs> so we are here. <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, 36 nations, and uh, which some of them are really small. They are even like a kind of a tribes, but it's still living in without contact, which is the greatest thing ever. But um, some of them also are really big and they are uh, getting into the globalization and uh, huge changes. So, what, try, what, what I'm trying to say, uh, that um, uh, in a territory that has so many nations, we cannot uh, make them like uh, standards, one's, one's. standards uh, standardize uh, every, everyone into one type of citizen. It's impossible. And that happens in the same, the whole world. We cannot be summarized. We cannot be. I, I do deeply believe that uh, the most important thing that we have here is that we are different. I like that I'm different from you. That makes us stronger. Makes us stronger, you know, because I can learn from you, you can learn from me. So, um, what happens in our country is that uh, uh, trying to go into uh, a world of economic, uh, political thinking, rule. Um, being in this ground of uh, many nations, it is absolutely a, a, a massive drama. So, uh, in the past, we have the, uh, a huge um, um, suffering by racism because uh, the people who have money were uh, only people who uh, damage society, and not these nations that we know now, not even was taken care of. So uh, our first fight was to uh, eliminate war in, in Belize, try to change the racism that we have there. And that was uh, possible. Uh, it was done by the movement of such a great movement of people and nations and different uh, cultures that were uh, fighting against to, after so many years. It was, yeah, it's so difficult to explain it's so much aspects in time that we need to. But mainly is that, and um, yeah, uh, and now uh, we've seen that uh, our biggest problem, in my view, in my eyes, is that uh, corruption is uh, one of the biggest problems that we have as in any system. Uh, everything is based in, in the money, and that creates corruption, and that creates um, a way of um, uh, using people. That it's um, not uh, doesn't fit 
know? In Bolivia, we have different cosmopolitans, not only just one. So what happens in, in Europe or in the rest of the world? To be in really contact, we need to step back a little bit and then open ourselves and our minds and everything to understand that there are different cosmopolitans than us. The ones that are not based on individualism in the people and in the self-empowerment and also in the uh, competition. That's a huge mistake. And then there's another cosmovisions that are more into community, more into understanding us as a group. Us meaning the plants, the soil, the water, the air, the mountains. All, all of it is our community, it's our way of living. So there are different ways of uh, living. So, yeah, I think I'm getting lost. No, no, but, but it's, it's beautiful. You are sharing and answering the question. And one final question, and then I'll go to the um, other speakers. So, um, I think you've clearly explained all that and, and the challenges with the different nations. 36, I mentioned, uh, was it? And uh, there was also a new flag made, the Wipala flag, right, to represent this. So, you have, let's say, a symbolical representation or recognition that there's multiple nations living together under then that one flag. Um, what kind of, um, let's say, concrete material things also to inspire of thinking of ways forward did um, the new presidency bring uh, to giving back to these nations or facilitating more the different cosmologies? Was there a certain impact that you're proud of that the movement gave uh, after it took office? The, the biggest achievement is that it brings the balance into society so we can uh, be more open and, uh, and accept first how racist we were. And then that change, it makes a little bit of balance. And that was the most, uh, yeah, the biggest step, I believe. Uh, after that, um, what we are having now is a, a misuse of uh, uh, the economy flow. So it is completely a mess. I'm, I'm personally, I don't believe that it's a good thing that uh, uh, the way the politics are going. Because, um, yeah. Colonization brings this mindset of uh, yeah, capitalist, capitalism. And back there in Bolivia, everything went like hyper capitalism. So everything is about uh, um, yeah, like huge corporations and everybody wants to sell. We made the, the law for Mother Earth, but what happens there? They try to, uh, with this law, use it uh, protected areas to give it to maybe the Chinese people some other, some other great uh, big companies to sell uh, lithium and thing, you know? So everything is tricky, very tricky with politics. But uh, thank you, I mean, I mean that that's also shows even if you get there, then even the work starts because what you say, now you're there, so it opened up the space for the conversation to happen, but then it's still a process. So thank you for sharing, uh, and I think that's also part of reparation. There's not an now we have repaired, right? It's going to be an intergenerational uh, process. Um, so I want to go, uh, I mean, you're all very politely and in solidarity with each other, so you want to listen to each other. I don't know if uh, we just follow like this, or is someone eager to uh, answer the question that I... Do you remember the first question? Uh, no, what's the first question? Okay, so the first question, and then we went off. Um, is uh, what would the reparations uh, mean in your context, but also how is colonialism and neocolonialism still visible in your context? Where you're uh, I think I'll have to start with the second part of the question first. How is colonialism and neocolonialism still uh, visible? Um, what I always say, and I, uh, 
I, 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 I bar no holds on saying this, is I come from Bonaire. It's one of the islands still under the control of the Dutch state, and it's by all means and purposes a colony. Um, in the media, in academia, different terms are being used. Uh, special municipality, overseas territories and stuff, and stuff, but if you look at the construction of how things are in law and in rule, we're still in direct control from some ministers in The Hague, sometimes who've never even seen the island or been there or, you know? Um, so I think... Yeah, the, the wording in law is called public entity, yeah, right? Yeah, public entity. That's how it's on paper yeah. in the Constitution. Yeah, public entity, so... Um, like a park. Something like that, yes. <laughs> Something for the, the public to, to use, and then the question is, of course, which public? Um, yeah. The first part of your question is? Well, but maybe to go for the, for the colonial damage, so it's clear you don't have, let's say, sovereignty of your place, no, you're a public don't. entity of the Netherlands. Can you maybe tell the implications of this that you, um, what does it mean for the people? Yeah, what this implies is that, of course, um, so we do have an island council. We, it's, you can compare it to like a municipal council. But that council's task is only executive. So that council only gets to execute what is decided in The Hague. Um, and that's problematic because, again, in The Hague, the people who are sitting there are not people from the islands. They don't have a, a feel for what's happening or what the people need or anything like that. And um, that causes a lot of uh, tension. Uh, <laughs> tension maybe isn't the right word, but yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it's not great. With it comes also the, the discrepancy between people who are from the islands and people who are from the European part of the Netherlands who, when on the island, have the same ability to do things in a sense of they have, they can, when it comes by law, there's nothing that restricts one to do something that the other can't, which is fine. But the difference is that someone from here can come with so much more capital, capital that are, are those people just you cannot get access to and they buy up houses, grounds, businesses, uh, businesses which when they run, by the way, they also do not hire locals explicitly. Um, so it's it, it's creating, honestly, a, a big separation, a segregation even to an extent um, on the island from those who have, who are clearly are all from the European part of the Netherlands and those who have not, who are all from the Caribbean part, from Bonaire specifically in this case. It's almost like uh, legalized settlers in that sense, yeah, right? Yeah, because uh, you don't get a say to do it differently because you're under jurisdiction. Yeah. So, and they settle on the island. And can you also say something? Because then there's a thing. Uh, so let's go back to the frame of the media. They say special municipality, right? So then you're part of the Netherlands. Is there equal citizenship? Are you equal to a Dutch person when it comes to social and economic situations? When I'm here, yes. When I'm here, yes. When I'm there, no. So that's how I would say it. Um, coming, like, for example, in um, court cases we've had where people have been treated significantly different while having committed the same crime. And I don't think I have to explain very difficultly which of the people got the heavier sentence. Um, so yeah, stuff like um, that, the jail that on which we don't have an equal basis. Um, I kind of want to take a step back because Generally, in the world, with a lot of countries, there's been a move towards decolonizing, but somehow the Dutch state is the only one that's moving towards recolonizing. I find that a very interesting, uh, very interesting phenomenon to, to notice. Um, and yeah, 
sorry, can you repeat your question again? I kind of well, so, no, so, so it's, it's part of it, so the settlement. And it, the, the question was also the impact, like, what does it oh, yeah. mean to live under yeah, yeah, that yeah, state yeah, the and are you yeah, equal? Yeah, yeah, I remember where yeah, I, I, yeah, I was going with this, sorry. Um, so <laughs> the thing that is complicated about this recolonization move is that partially the people voted for it. But it was voted for under this trend of like, so either you're with us or you're without us. Without us meaning you're also gonna most likely get financial punishment for not being with the Dutch state. And people really were afraid of that, understandably so. So a lot of people wanted to vote safely to say, hey. And this also connects to the whole knowledge thing of there's also just a lack of knowledge about politics, about everything actually, decolonization. Um, so of course, if you're also surviving, the first thing you think is like, what is the safest choice I'm gonna make to, 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 to live for the next day, you know? So that's kind of part of it. But the promise of when people voted to say, okay, let's strengthen these ties, was a basis of true political, economical, social equality. That was the promise that was made. And that's the promise why people picked that, because they figured, oh, if we get the same, uh, you know, social uh, uh, and stuff. So, social so, benefits. Social benefits. You get you get um, uh, same access to education, same access to to, to um, economic opportunities and stuff like that. Sure, that would be beneficial. So that's what the people thought they were gonna get. But till this day, it's now uh, 13 years later. We're still fighting for it. We're still fighting for it. There's a court case right now from Inkebom, which is the uh, is a laborers uh, coalition and like union on the island who's now suing uh, the Dutch state exactly for not having even equal minimum wages to here. Um, the minimum wage there is around eight dollars? Dollars? <laughs> so that's uh, six euros or something. Uh, you can already imagine that that's not really enough to live by. With that, that we have that prices because of people with a lot of buying potential coming in the prices for everything is going up, so the locals are being pushed out of, you know, just being able poverty, to, basically. into poverty, yeah, into even, out of even buying the groceries and stuff, which is just becoming almost impossible for some people. So um, that, that's happening there as well. Um, yeah, so it's not, it's not equal, and, and we're, still, we're still fighting for that. I also want to jump in on the basis of why, for example, they didn't want to raise the minimum wage from the beginning and why it's taken so long. Um, which in itself is a colonial and racist reason, because the reasoning that the state gave was, wait, if we raise the minimum wage on the island, it's gonna to attract too many people from the surrounding places, and we don't want that. Which is, first of all, racist and problematic, and then it's also kind of disingenuous, because it's the state who decides who can enter or not. So it's super disingenuous as well but yet it's something that's cited as a reason. Uh, when it comes to inequality to, uh, to labor, um, you know, first of all, the islands aren't, don't have very big economies, so a lot of um, the money and everything usually would come through tourism. So restaurants, bars, hotels, tourism. I'm not gonna go into whether we should do tourism debate or not, because I have my own issues with that as well, but fair, that's what people made their um, money with, how they made their living and everything. Um, and with that difference in capital that's happening now with a lot of wealthy people going to the islands, they're buying up all those restaurants, they're buying up all the hotels, they're buying up all the places where locals used to get their bread from 
and they now explicitly, explicitly, it's been in the newspapers and everything, explicitly say, we're not gonna hire the locals because they are lazy. Yeah, so colonialism is still with us. I, I, I can't add anything to that. Uh, I think you've pretty much answered how colonialism is working yeah. in Bonaire still. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first time reading also the One World article about the situation on the island that you have different minimum wage, different uh, pensions, different like, and you're still on Dutch territory. Yeah. And it baffled me that we still have these racial lines. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And we're gonna have the second part for all three also about rep reparations and maybe also with the audience, but I wanna go to Fitria, um, who is actually, uh, yeah, also from Indonesia, will speak from that perspective, which I think is really important as well with the Bandung Conference, which was an initiative that started um, there as well. So maybe you could answer the same question. Do you remember the question? How does colonialism still work through in the present in Indonesia, do you see that ramification and damage okay. today? Okay, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, yeah, so I have been to Indonesia recently and I have been brought up with um, the colonial history as how people in Indonesia see it. And it definitely differs from what we are taught here in the Netherlands, that's uh, one thing. Um, but what you see in Indonesia is that uh, colonialism definitely still exists in the way people um, connect with each other, so it's a very social structure as well, that there is a form of classism and um, glorification of the West, basically. People are still idolizing it, the, the white man's ideal. And um, when I'm there, I'm very aware of my position, because I live here, I am privileged. So it's very hard for me to tell them, but it's not like that. And um, yeah, that, that's something that really runs through how Indonesia runs on a day-to-day -day basis. But also when you take a look at, for example, the law in Indonesia, much of it is still based in how it was ruled during colonial times. Actually, just recently, Indonesia has made changes in their law that was very publicly debated uh, about it. People were very angry about it, mostly the young people, because specifically, because there were, there were many uh, different law changes, but one in specific was made it to the headlines. And that was because the Indonesian government says, okay, but we are now going to penalize people who have intercourse outside of marriage. And people were saying things like, oh, but that's like radical Islam. And Indonesia is going to become a new Pakistan or something. And, like that's a bad thing or whatever. I don't know, you know, it's, it became really political really fast, but people did not want to see what the reason behind it was. Actually, one of the reasons behind it is that people wanted to protect the unity of marriage and of family life, uh, mostly, and that comes from indigenous norms and values. A lot of it actually comes from indigenous norms and values. And when you look at it from a Western perspective, it becomes criminalized very easily because it doesn't fit within their framework. So everything that happens there, when you look at it from a Western perspective, it's very easy to criminalize it. But do you actually know what went down? Do you actually know what these indigenous people stand for? Do you actually know their norms and values? And the answer is, no, you don't. And if you don't, you don't get to say in it. That's what I think. And um, yeah, so a lot of these things are still happening there. And um, I think it's a good thing that Indonesia is finally taking a step in remodeling their law structures. And what I also noticed that the Indonesian government, the current government, and of course we don't know this yet because Indonesia is having an election next year, so we don't know if this is going to 
continue, but they are actually starting with a really big initiative and in taking a look at their own history. Uh, including what happened in 1965, which is a really big taboo subject, of course, because of what happened when uh, Sukarno got... Not everyone knew what Bandung was. Right. We had five hands, so you've got to explain what happened in 1965. 1965. So in 1965, um, the coup d'etat, they say it in um, Indonesia, um, the government of Sukarno was overthrown by Suharto. Very well, Sukarno was the one who initiated, actually, the Bandung, the Bandung. at the time, to unite against imperialism, colonialism, yeah. Exactly, and Sukarno is the one who fought for Indonesian independence. Sukarno is the founding father of Indonesia, who is still criminalized here in the Netherlands because people see Sukarno as someone who stole their precious colony. Um, but, um, so Suharto came, and Suharto was backed by US government, and um, communism was criminalized. And people who so much as had a neighbor or a family member who was active within the Partai Komunis Indonesia, they were not sure of their lives anymore. A lot of people actually fled here. A lot of my friends uh, were born in Russia or other parts of the world, and they couldn't go back to Indonesia because their parents were criminalized for communist activities. And um, I believe more than two, no, one million people were eventually... It was in the hundreds and thousands. Yeah. And I look at Chris, what, what do you know the number? The exact number? We definitely don't know an exact number. At least 500,000. Yes. But actually, Suharto's own military officers, some were bragging about two or three million. So yes. uh, one million is a commonly accepted number now. Yeah, one million people <laughs> were murdered um, between 1965 and 1968, I believe. And um, so that's never been spoken about in Indonesia, like not really. And people who have communist ties or have families who had communist ties are sometimes still being criminalized without most of the people in Indonesia even knowing what communism really is. So they just see it as, okay, but communism was here and we were not allowed to have a religion anymore because communism is against religion. That's the only thing they know, basically, in the conversations. And that's why we should criminalize them. And um, they don't want to talk about this, but they do want to talk about how Sukarno freed us from the colonizers. But a lot of people who were communists actually helped us achieve this. And why is this not being really talked about? So the president, the current president, has finally said, okay, um, we regret the past. He didn't say an apology. He regrets the past. And in line of that, he is starting a research, a really big research campaign with a different ministries in Indonesia to look into this past. The 1965, but also a lot of other things that went down with all the other nations, the other islands that are in Indonesia, such as the Moluccans and uh, West Papua, which is still being fought over. Thank you, and, and, and maybe also a final question, and then we can uh, maybe also open it up to the audience. Um, so what was the, so we went over it, you have now a new government, but I still want to zoom into this 1965 period, so there was a lot of uh, communist socialist killed, I mean, sometimes you get labeled a communist. I get labeled in the Netherlands sometimes a communist yes. without using the word class or anything, or Marx. I haven't read the book yet. Anyway, so it's becoming a swear word. But um, uh, what was the legacy? Because you had a. How, how long was the dictatorship on? Of Suharto? Yeah, Suharto. Oh my. 1998. 1998, so you yeah. have about 30 years dictatorship, yes. right? And they were one of I the biggest, the um, let's say, 
beneficiaries of, as well of the IMF World Bank, so your government had a debt when they came out of the dictatorship, and that means something. Can you say something? What is because then you try to return to normal government, let's say, but what is the legacy of 30 years dictatorship? What does it mean today for Indonesia? What what did that legacy leave? The legacy of Suharto, you mean? Yes, right? and the, the, the difficulty that that brings for bringing Indonesia forward today. Um, I believe it's actually one of the same strategies that were used during colonial times, which is the divide and conquer. Uh, so a lot of people with different opinions are, are being held against each other and um, prevented from becoming a unity, which is also uh, initially a strategy that the Netherlands posed when Indonesia was being formed. We cannot be a unity. If we're, if we're a unity, then they know for sure that they would lose. And that is something that was also applied during uh, Suharto uh, times. And um, as long as you kept the people happy, um, the bellies filled, and they didn't know what was going on in the backseat, then it was fine. But after the dictatorship, people actually found out more in detail about his corruption. And his family still lives there and lives off this corruption that he did upon the land. So all the money that he got from the taxes, from all the people that he could steal from, they were, yeah, still, they're, they're still alive. And the legacy is still there. And um, actually, Indonesia, uh, for not too long ago, was in the list of one of the most corrupt countries in the world. It's because of this legacy, because of this, we don't, when, when you say it in the Netherlands, we don't want to share it with other people, it's just ours. Something like that. That's what I noticed, at least. Thank you, and then uh, I want to open it up. Uh, uh, thank you all for sharing. Uh, yeah, really, and I know <laughs> we, we can like fill days with each context, and so I know it's also um, you know to the surface. Um, but yeah, that's also the idea of exchange that we learn, and maybe we see commonalities. Uh, so I want to open it to the audience, and maybe give one remark before it also open to the audience with the legacies of dictatorship or corrupt governments, you know, ours is also corrupt, but we don't name it because uh, as Sandu said, uh, it has a white face on it, but we have many corruption problems as well. Yeah. Um, but the thing is also with 30 years of dictatorship and this uh, government, so the government spends money that doesn't benefit the people for these 30 years, and they are now in debt. And if you're in debt with IMF and World Bank, and that's why I think one of you also said with the debt cancellation, is so important. This is a demand that is across the global south and um, uh, uh, I say uh, echoed. Is we should cancel odious debt. Odious debt, like the debt we shouldn't have had, is because they're now an indebted government because they had a puppet dictatorship, and now they have to pay with interest rate back to these banks, and it didn't benefit the people. But if you have a debt with the bank, you're not allowed to restructure your economy because you have to abide by the rules of the bank that because there's string we talked about strings attached you give the loan and you say with this loan you have to do this this and that economic policy to give one like concrete example with this if i go to indonesia i'm very rich suddenly right i can live like a king i every euro is a whole meal and yada yada that's also the same for corporations if they want to buy land it's just a euro for i don't know how much land this is economic policies by these world banks. They say, open up your market for foreign uh, uh, companies because that's gonna, you know, the whole new liberal project benefit the economy. So they lower the prices of everything, they inflate it. That's economic policies that's designed from here, implemented through dictatorship and debt that you can't get out of it. If you're debted, you cannot restructure the economy. 
So I just wanted to flag that out, that there's more than 42 countries currently having odious debt and are, are, cannot come out of their economic situation um, because of actually the colonial structure that we have uh, today. So I just wanted to share that as well. Um, then I want to look to you. I mean, I have so many questions to you that you have so much to share more, but I also want to look to you if, if um, there's a question or, or it can also be a remark. Uh, what I would like very much. Uh, first, I want to invite you. We are already for three months demonstrating on the dam against the uh, coup d'etat in Peru. And uh, going back to our uh, subject. Uh, oh, sorry. Sorry, I was really. Going back to our subject. Um, I personally, and uh, this is something people will discuss or not, uh, I'm not really interested in reparations. In Bolivia, we say the following, and Evo Morales with Partai Mas said also again and again, we don't want any reparations, we just want to be left alone and to develop our own politics, our own culture, our own economy on our own terms. And that's what we want, that's what we need. We do not need, and so at this moment what's happening, uh, um, uh, the reason why Peru got uh, a coup d'etat is because the war in Ukraine. What happened is, is that uh, uh, Bolivia, with its new policies, was, ex was having uh, uh, economical deals with any country it decided to. Decided to. So Bolivia has economical relations with China, with Russia, with India. United States and European Union are not happy about that. So they installed uh, in, uh, in December of the past year a coup d'etat in order to avoid that Bolivia can make use of the, uh, uh, of the uh, harbor for the export of lithium, for instance, which is very important for the uh, world industry. Uh, because to Chile, they don't get it. And under the President Castillo, they, they did get the freedom to export to whichever country they want. So that's, at this moment, officially they have been killed in, in, uh, in Peru 80 uh, civilians, and that's the official uh, number. And, and where can we support this protest that's happening, or, how can, or should people come to you if they want to know more about it? Yeah, uh, you, every Sunday we're standing on the dam. And uh, yeah, it's easy to find. Yeah, every Sunday. So if on you the feel like just, and then we can have conversations about that, maybe uh, think about other options. Uh, yeah, and there is a lot of a lot of things happening. Uh, I cannot tell about it right now because there is no time for it. Thank you for the question, but it, it does raise something a dynamic. What you say, like they are punished or good, how you want to name it, for the fact that they um, want to have their own uh, trade or economics or do their foreign affairs sovereign. And uh, yeah, that brings me to the question uh, on Bonaire, why is a cucumber four euros there? No. <laughs> I didn't expect that question out of the blue like that. <laughs> uh, so you told me once, I was like, yeah, why? It, it's, in, it's so interesting. So um, the Hague also has control over trade. We don't do that. It's, we don't have a say in it. Um, for example, I'm, I'm not gonna use a cucumber because that one is maybe a bit more straightforward, I'm going to use, for example, bananas. Bananas go from, like, for example, Brazil, 
to the Netherlands to then be shipped back to Bonaire. Why? You see, it makes any sense. Yeah. It's, it's, first of all, not sustainable. It's really bad for the environment because you're using so much like fossil fuels to do that. The price goes up insanely. If we could have traded directly with Brazil, it would have been different. It would have been different. <laughs> but the Netherlands wants to be the middleman. Yeah. Yes. So, um, is uh, Bonaire a part of the Caricom? No. Oh, wait. Oh, I want to go into that as well. Thanks for asking that question. Um, CARICOM, an amazing uh, institution. It's, uh, for those who don't know, it's kind of like the European Union of the Caribbean and, uh, and South America. Kind of, so you have a lot of, uh, just, you know, the, the head of state of Jamaica, the head of state of uh, Barbados, who now has a new one, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, great Caribbean heads of state. And then in the middle of them, you'll find like some Dutch minister who's there to represent Bonaire, Synthestatius, and Sega. Uh, no, we don't get a say in CARICOM, we don't get to represent ourselves in pretty much anything internationally, it'll be a Dutch minister. Yeah. Mic drop? Alright. Um, is there any other question from the audience to the panel? And otherwise I have another final question. We have room for, let's say, two more questions. Yeah. to the Caribbean context, I guess. Because we talk a lot about, and I think it's been mentioned a lot, the divide and conquer uh, prospect is, we see it overall. Um, I was just having a conversation at the table about how the Dutch Caribbean perspective of our history of colonialism is in some ways very similar to the Indonesian, and uh, but we don't ever connect on that. There's no connection between the uh, societies because it's literally divide and conquer. Um, it was only when I moved here to the Netherlands that I was able to understand what was happening on that side of the world but by Dutch colonization. I agree with that. Um, so like we have no knowledge of that on the islands themselves and I believe uh, divide and conquer also goes even further than uh, what we see happening right now in the Caribbean it is for me, if I were to fly from Aruba to Curacao or Bonaire, I'm easily paying about $800. I can't it's even a, visit. And it's a 20 minute flight. Yeah, it's a 20 minute flight, and I can't visit my family. So that divide and conquer, we see it so clearly, they don't want, for example, Caribbeans to become a sovereign thing within its own, which we have the capacity to be, but they can't allow it because that means they lose power within the Caribbean entity. And so that divide and conquer aspect, I believe, is something to be focused on within all of our communities because that's how they remain in power, I would say. Yeah. I want to kind of go into that divide and conquer thing as well because some people even say, oh, you know, like every island's for themselves. You have Aruba and Curacao with their own thing, and then the other islands which followed. And I recently had an analysis of that which I found very interesting. You maybe know why Aruba left the yes. federation because all the money went to Curacao, who then had to be divided to everybody else, which of itself is also divide and conquer, not to like point fingers at Curacao, but if the Dutch state indeed were to do it just, they just, for example, looked at, okay, every island brings in this much money, divide the pool of money we give, give each, each, each island for themselves, and then they do it, but they purposely gave it to Curacao, also with the whole Curacao and Onderhoorigheden thing that the islands initially didn't, weren't even named, 
And then that caused a bunch of tension with the other islands which had their own like economical capacity. And that caused the whole friction of the islands like saying, oh, maybe this construction that we're on isn't good. We should step out and negotiate things straightly with the Netherlands ourselves. Because the way that they set it up, there's going to be one of the islands as the middleman, which also isn't a very yeah, useful way of doing that. And hence the whole dissolution of, of the federation, right? Um, also to connect back to the Indonesia thing, I want to connect back because um, so the constitution that they had in mind for Indonesia uh, during the, the like when they wanted to uh, like uh, forcefully uh, put that on Indonesia, when that didn't work, they took that same constitution, modified it a bit, and applied it to the Caribbean islands. Oh, that's uh, well. We're, that's why we're in a panel to conversate because uh, the model has been applied on both sides of the sea. Um, but I think this is a really important question, and I don't know if uh, either of you also want to reflect on that with the divide and rule. How can uh, maybe how it played out in the context, but also maybe what can be done against it. Uh, maybe in the Bolivian context, what brought the unity between the 36 nations to make a collective flag? Because something had they apparently. Maybe to start with you, they apparently, you know, were um, able to unite under it. But what were conditions to make sure you were not divided? What were, what what would help in overcoming this divide and rule tactics? You would say. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I believe the 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 common goal uh, of uh, all these thirty six nations were were to recognize recognize themselves, to understand that they have the, their own power to live, to be there, to use their land, to recognize their own children as uh, their own children, you know? So um, there was a beautiful moment where all the nations were marching into the creation of the new constitution. And uh, yeah, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful moment to see all of the nations uh, walking days and days just to show uh, the appreciation for this uh, um, action uh, was completely inspiring. Then I believe that uh, everybody understand how uh, divide and conquer was uh, so powerful because it happened after 500 years. It took too long to get there, basically. Yes. Uh, but uh, it, Mainly, I believe that it's not because of an oppressive hand, uh, but mainly because the people wanted to see it. That is the thing. That is the thing. If you want to open your your clarity, your vision, and all the people around you, then you can see it. Then you can release it. There is not. Uh, there is not. Is the way is not to find another uh, enemy to uh, oppress, you know? It's not about oppression. So yeah, these uh, 36 countries made it, and they made it together to be recognized as a plurinational state, which was what, what we are now. And uh, yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, but, you know, there's always a, a tricky thing there. Um, we are still under the, under the idea of uh, colonial uh, thinking, which is the politics. The politics and the way that we are uh, trying to understand that one system can rule everything. That is a big uh, mistake because 
yeah, we also, our alphas, we are trying to fight against this system. What we are trying to do is an RS system that has the same shape. So uh, the idea, I believe, to, to do something about it is to uh, not use hierarchy anymore. Instead, we can use something that's called heterarchy, that is not uh, made of uh, pointing this parallel, but mainly being small, little uh, cells that interact each other. Like a relational web. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Why? And this is because also a good uh, thing about uh, divide and conquer. Uh, because imagine if we are all together, and we give all together all of our power to one people, then we lose everything, as we are doing all the time. But if we are all together, but we keep our power, and then we are just share what we want to share between among us, and then we empower ourselves. So we don't need to have a, a flag for every citizen in the world, but mostly we need to be in contact with the ones that we care and we love. So we, your information can go to me, and I can put my filters on, do whatever I feel is better for all of us, and then change it to you and give it to you, and then you can do the same, the same, and spread it. You know, there is a spread of information and value. So I believe that is a, another good example of divide and conquer that we can use also. And I think you actually gave, you pointed also actually a very important divide and rule mechanism is to privilege one group or give them more the position to decide over a bigger region. And then that caused tension, I think, also with the Curaçao. So I think that's an important mechanism. Redistribute and let people have their own say. Uh, yeah, more, more uh, let's say, less centralized. Um, Fitria, you want to respond yes. or add to I would it? like to add that um, education is very important. Because back in colonial times, uh, what you said and what you also uh, mentioned, um, you know, giving privilege to one group over the other, privilege meant education. So many Indonesians or indigenous peoples that are now part of Indonesia, they were deprived of education. They could not read or write. They were not supposed to know what really was going on because the more you know, the more they would, you know, be against the colonial structures. So I think in order to have this division where we uh, stand united and um, have a distribution that is more equal to one another, you need to make education accessible. That's just priority that should be priority and, and I think also the content of the education because what you said like not knowing your own history because what was for me eye-opening at the time when I was in student protest in Amsterdam about decolonizing the university then there was also the same protest happening in South Africa about decolonizing the university I was like wait a minute are you oh you're, you're learning the yes. same philosophers what exactly. the heck right so, so also, yeah, yeah a lot of things uh, have already been in place also uh, from activists before us for example we don't have to reinvent the wheel mm. we can also tap from inf inspiration and wisdom that they have already fought for and I think we should give them more credit for it definitely and not you know claim it as our own Definitely, that's beautiful. Onto the education part, specifically, we need to create our own knowledge. We need to have our own systems of knowledge. I think that's more important because I feel if we're to take your example to maybe an extreme, like if I were to be educated in becoming an expert in neoliberalism and neoliberal ways, it still doesn't help the movement or anything. So we really need to have our own basis of knowledge, and in that, we need to get educated to to, to us all.
Thank, thank you. And um, maybe to because I know we are. You're gonna uh, just one microphone, then you're gonna say something. Um, uh, just for the time, I have to also keep the track of time. We're gonna move into a break soon, so I also want to ask maybe to everyone give a final reflection on uh, maybe ways to go forward, but also how people can support uh, what you're doing. Uh, so how can we also be of support for you? But first, share your um, thought that you want to add. Okay. Thank you very much. I guess it's very important to understand that uh, one of the problems that we are having as a civilization is that we are still keeping in the same uh, shape of uh, understanding that is uh, the induction of information and this is ruled in every institution of education. What does it mean? Is that we feel this need or we need this uh, uh, clarity to be, uh, to, to be a learner, to learn something. And we go with this um, uh, fragility open into a, uh, an institution that is going to feed us with what they want. So uh, what we need to do actually is to break this idea of uh, induction of information, induction of education, induction of communication. It is one of the things that are uh, really um, Make, make us a, a lot of problems for us and for the next generations. Um, according to education, this is very important. What we need to do and to understand also, put it like in a balance. What happens 10,000 years ago until maybe 300 years? And what is happening in these last 300 years? About knowledge, about understanding, about what do think that is uh, uh, technology, what is about uh, social understanding and social advances. So we need to understand a little bit. Why I'm saying this? Because uh, what we have in the past is uh, our ancient knowledge, ancient wisdom, was something that uh, gave us the chance to be in balance for thousands of years. That's what we need to, in one way, put it back together. Like here, this is, this is great. I mean, there's not only uh, knowledge, but it's our love. It's love, not, not only for yourself, but you as a family, as a member of us. And that is the most important thing. What is education? Education, I believe, is like understanding us where we really are. Not thinking in the future, not just having this mindset of what is going to be or what is going to happen in this other part of the world, how many millions are loose somewhere in somehow kind of war, but mostly here, we are here right now. So that is the most important thing. Education starts for us understanding where we are. And the most important to not accept induction of uh, communication and thinking. That is a really, really uh, important uh, practice that we can share. Thank you, and also thank you for bringing in the concept of time, right? Because we also have often short years thinking, we can even feel disempowered, like we cannot change anything. But if you look in other ways of life and thinking, you have a way longer time frame or seven generations thinking, and every empire is fallen, right? So if it's not about us here as an individual, but next generation, you know that this empire will crumble by itself as well. Maybe we're not going to see it, but it's, it's hopeful to be 
part of that slower, longer, they went before us, they're gonna continue after us, and we know we are, what we are part of. So I think, yeah, thank you for bringing in time. Um, Vitria, do you have any closing? Uh, yes, um, so one of the questions is also how you could support us, right? Yes, yeah. for, for your context in, in relation, what are maybe your operations demand that are logical uh, from your position with yeah. being active in so the from the from the Indonesian perspective, one of the most important thing is the claim that the Netherlands has that Indonesia was only freed or independent on the twenty um, of December twenty seventh of December nineteen twenty nine, but oh, no nineteen forty nine. Nineteen forty nine. Yeah. yeah. And um, our Independence Day is seventeenth of August nineteen forty five, and it's still not legally recognized by the Netherlands. So that means Indonesia cannot make any claims of what went down between 1945 and 1949 because the Netherlands has done a lot of damage, of course, in the course of uh, colonial history, but specifically in that period. And uh, what is happening here is, as well is that the Indonesian history or their colonial history in Indonesia is being fragmented. So other groups that were actually also part of the colony of the oppression, like doing the oppressing upon other people, are getting more space to claim their victimhood, while the indigenous people of Indonesia that are now Indonesians, they don't get space at all. So learn your history, I would say, and support the companies that are really making the impact on claiming reparations in the first place. And in the context of Indonesia, that's Comité Nederlandse Eerschulden, that's KUKB, exactly, Comité Utang Kehormatan Belanda. Um, uh, Dutch Honor uh, Debts, um, uh, and uh, Jeffrey Pondaf is the, the uh, founder of this organization and he actually demanded, uh, he sued the Dutch government in 2011 and he won. And so that sent a message to all of us Indonesians here in the Netherlands that it's possible to claim that. It, it gave so much hope and, and um, faith that we can actually make a difference. So, um, learn from these organizations and, uh, yeah, don't lose your faith. Thank you uh, for bringing in that in. And uh, we have also, uh, with uh, what you mentioned, uh, Jeffrey Pondag, uh, we have monthly decolonial learning sessions. We have one uh, in-depth interview with him and Marjolein van uh, Paget about these court cases and what it showed and the coloniality uh, in our decolonial learning sessions. And one thing that was really my, uh, I think uh, eye-opening for me as well with uh, what uh, Jeffrey shared as well, because yes, it was a victory that they won the court case, but the court case was still very colonial because they had to do it within the colonial framework to get their right. And for instance, uh, one of the amounts they calculate for the victims, like you said, the minimum wage in Bonaire is, yeah, a black life in Bonaire is, has a different value minimum wage than in the Netherlands, and the same was in colonial Indonesia. So they calculated the loss of life at 120 euros or something, like, it was ridiculous. Like, yeah, it was uh, the a man who was um, actually beheaded. And as I'm writing my book, right, about Indonesian um, perspectives on colonial history, this man that was beheaded was actually, and I found out, was a cousin of my grandfather. And he got 123 euros for the fact that his father was beheaded and his head was shown into the whole village and people had to kiss it because he was a leader and the Dutch military knew how to cancel them out. And um, he got 123 euros for it, which he, of course, denied because it's it, nothing. And um, that is why these court cases are colonial, because the Netherlands does not legally recognize 17th of August 1945. If that happens, then we can really start talking on an equal basis as Indonesians 
and demand reparations. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm not still processing that. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oh, no, I mean, you don't have to be sorry. That's just messed up. Um, maybe this is the philosopher in me, but if I really have to answer the question of how can people help, I think with Bonaire, we're in a unique situation that the ability for decision-making lies here. So how we vote here also determines how things happen there. So I would urge people to be mindful of that and really, you know, for the parties that you vote for, see what their policies are for the other part of the Netherlands that often gets ignored. See if they actually look, you know, in, in bettering the conditions for the islands there. I think that's one very concrete way that people can help. Um, yeah, also, <laughs> this is maybe a petty one, like, don't go to, don't go to vacation on Bonaire. Yes. <laughs> Because of because <laughs> yeah. again, the, that whole vacationing also ends up in strengthening the inequalities and everything. So it's actually like you 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 end up making things worse for people not to go. So that's why I, uh, I I I'm not the biggest fan of the, the whole how the situation of tourism is there. So those again, are two concrete yeah, it's a settlement. So, yeah, they operate as settlements. So uh, thank you for sharing that as well. Um, I think this uh, gives a lot of food for thought. I think you've opened up so many layers to what colonialism, from dividing rule to economics, to legal, to ancestral culture. Like there's so many dimensions to reparations. So I just also wanted to point out there's probably layers that we have not discussed that maybe you do bring in. So you don't have to, I say. Um, if later on in the breakout circles you bring in something, an expertise or knowledge or a layer that we haven't covered, please do so because it's about opening all these uh, layers of reparations and I'm sure there's a lot that hasn't been covered yet as well. Um, but before we go into um, sm uh, smaller groups, the smaller groups are sort of already made. I mean, you can switch tables, also nice. But after this short break of, let's say, 10 minutes, um, you can have a coffee or uh, go to the bathroom. Uh, then uh, Pravini will explain what we're going to do uh, next. So uh, see you in 10 minutes. Thank you.